1963, if you don't remember that, it was only 60 years ago. 60 years ago in England, a Royal Mail train was ambushed and robbed. The robbery was a great notice in that day, more than any other train robbery that had taken place in England. And the reason for that particular robbery was that it involved more money stolen than had ever been stolen from a royal train. In that day, there was $6 million stolen. That may not sound much today because we're living 60 years later, but today it would be 60, over 60 million. So at that time, it was a, a great notice because of how much money was stolen. Secondly, it was of great uh, notoriety because less than one million of it was ever recovered. Another reason that it was of great notoriety was that the authorities had very little success in capturing the thieves. In fact, they captured none. The third reason it was so worldwide known and called the Great Train Robbery, which a movie has been made about, the, the robbers, as I said, went into uh, different cultures and societies and were never captured. And the fact that they were never captured, people began to look at this as these people were folk heroes. Even though people had lost money, over time, these people became, who, who had this robbery, became folk heroes. Even people who were committed to law enforcement said that the crime these people committed was admirable in that it was so well thought out, it was so well executed, and they weren't ever caught. I mean, we see things like that today. I mean, movies are made of people making these great thought-out robberies and all of that type of stuff. And people are made heroes. And in fact, some of the people at that time, ad, the, the investigators admitted grudging admiration that they had pulled off the perfect crime. They were very shrewd. If you notice that as Murphy read our text this morning, that was what was said of a steward, a manager. That although what he did was not right, it was wrong, it was evil, he was very shrewd. So this morning, I'd like for us, if you haven't turned already, to turn to Luke chapter 16. And as we look at this text this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the shrewd manager, and from it, we are going to look at what we can learn from this. 
Jesus, as you noticed this morning, gave what is known as a parable. A parable is a story. A parable is a story that Jesus often used. In fact, he, he gave 38 of them in the scriptures that are recorded. And what is recorded in a parable and what a parable is, it takes something that is commonly known in everyday life and brings it alongside spiritual truth. So Jesus takes something that is not known, I mean it's commonly known, and uses it to illustrate spiritual truth, something that his hearers should know. And that's for our benefit as well, because Scripture was written for our learning. That they, through the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope, confident expectation. So we learn from these things. As you're going to Luke chapter 16 this morning, we also need to know, as we look at the parables, that it gives a lot of details it tells a story. And a lot of times people have trouble with parables because they try to make every detail in the parable mean something. But that's not the case. Remember, Jesus is telling the story of something commonly known to the people in that day to bring it alongside spiritual truth he wants them to learn and know. Some people try to make every detail mean something. Don't do that when you study the parables. There's usually one big idea. And there is supporting material to go along with that big idea. And that's what we're going to see this morning. In this parable, as I said... Jesus tells about a man whom he said was shrewd. Just like the train robbers were shrewd. This morning he tells us that this servant did something sinful. As we come to Luke chapter 16, which we've already read this morning, this parable comes in about the last half year of Jesus' ministry. In Jesus' ministry, when he first began to preach and to teach, he was welcomed into the synagogues. I don't know if you remember, if, if you know the book of Matthew, you, I mean the book of Luke chapter verse 4, chapter 4, when he went into the synagogue, they said that they handed him the scroll, and he got up and read the scroll, and then he sat down and said, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing this morning. After that, Jesus was not so much welcomed into the synagogues. After that, he would go to the houses of people. They would invite him there. 
And in those days, people used to come around the houses which were open, and they would stand out there and listen to the religious leaders talk and discuss things that maybe were said in the synagogue in the morning. So Jesus began, after the religious leaders became hardened in their willful unbelief towards him, he began to speak in parables because the religious leadership were just not getting it. They willfully desired not to trust Christ. So Jesus began to speak in parables and he began to speak to large crowds and that's what we see as we come to chapter 16 this morning. In chapter 16, notice that he is it's in the setting of a cluster of parables. From chapters 14 on there, there are a number of parables and in verse 1 he says he also said to his disciples there was a certain rich man. Notice he said to his disciples, in the last half year of Jesus' ministry, he is concentrating now on the, the people who are following him and believing on him and his disciples. Especially in the last half year, he deals mainly with his disciples to prepare them for his leaving them. The... Uh, Religious leaders, as I said, continually sought ways to get rid of him. And so Jesus began to speak to the people in parables. Again, he took what is known, common, everyday life, and put it beside spiritual, to illustrate spiritual truth, things they needed to learn. So on your handout there... As we come to the chapter 16, Jesus had just spent a good deal of time teaching in parables to the crowds and the disciples. As was often the case with his teaching, the religious leadership never seemed to get it and to put it together that he was speaking to them and they became more and more hardened in their willful unbelief. They became hardened. We see that now, as what was happening, because in this parable, beginning in Luke chapter 16, Jesus addresses his disciples. The story Jesus is going to tell is straightforward. And there have been many people, as I said, who misunderstand parables because they try to make everything speak. Notice, first of all, when we come to this text, there are four spiritual truths that I think we can pull from this text. Four spiritual truths. Verses 1 through 3, we need to learn that all of us have a stewardship or a managership that has been entrusted to us. Notice verses 1 through 3 again. He also said to his uh, disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him, or it was reported to him, that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? 
Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward, or the manager, said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking my stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Jesus turned to his disciples and began to tell them the story about a rich man. He had a servant, a steward, a manager, who was the head of all the other servants in the house. And what this manager would do would make sure that all the servants in the house and all of the master's business uh, doings were taken care of by this man. He's telling this story of something that's very familiar in that day. In fact, if you would go back to Genesis, you would remember that there was a man that Abraham had that was his steward. His name was Eliezer. In Genesis 39, you remember the story of Joseph. Joseph, you remember, was the steward or the overseer of all that the house of Potiphar owned. In fact, it's interesting because verse 39, chapter 39, verse 6 tells us, And he, Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and Potiphar knew not what he had, except the bread which he did eat. This manager is similar to that in this parable. He manages everything. He oversees everything. He had this responsibility where he was in charge of taking care of all of his business dealings, all of his holdings. This businessman was probably what we would call today a gentleman farmer. He had all of these holdings, had all of these possessions, but he was not hands-on. So they had a manager. This manager takes care of all that's going on so that the man hardly knows what's going on, what, what he has except what he's eating. Jesus went on to say, as he began this story, that one day this trusted manager was accused or it was reported to him that he was wasting his goods. He was squandering or was careless with that which the master owned. Remember, he had all authority to do whatever he would with the master's uh, properties, wealth, servants, and all of that. But there was an accusation. And the word, that accusation, means to slander by gossip. I don't know if the other servants were jealous of him. But apparently there was gossip among them that this guy was careless with what was the master's. 
Never happens in real life, does it? He was accused of wasting. And as I said, the word wasted refers to wastefulness, carelessness, and the neglect of duty, and other faults through which his master's goods were squandered. Was he incompetent? Was he guilty of what he was accused of? We don't know for sure, but it really doesn't matter. Because in this story, as Jesus is telling it, remember, he's talking about something that is commonly known to teach spiritual truth. It's interesting that we don't, the text doesn't say whether he was guilty of it or not. Apparently he wasn't an embezzler because if he would have been an embezzler, he would have been put into prison. So what we have here in this story Regardless of whether he's guilty or not, his master's estate, he suddenly faced a crisis. Notice verse 3 again. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? He owned nothing. He just managed what the master owned. So all of a sudden, he becomes concerned. He's mulling over in his mind what he can do. Probably the very first time in his life that this servant suddenly realized exactly what he was. He was a servant, a master, a manager, a steward. He owned absolutely nothing of his own. All that he had was what was paid to him through what he did in his work. All his possessions he had were not his. When the rich man told him in verse 2 that he could no longer be the steward, the manager over his affairs, he said to himself in verse 3, what am I going to do? He had nothing, he owned nothing, he owned no home, he had no land, he had no possessions, he owned no goods, he owned nothing. He was a servant manager. That's all he was. He owned nothing but the privilege of managing his master's things. He owned nothing but the privilege of managing his master's wealth. He owned nothing. The possessions he possessed and used as his own were not really his. 
And I think for the first time in his life, it dawned on him that he realized exactly what he was. A manager. Do you see the application of the spiritual truth here? For believers, disciples of Christ... Do you see the truth that the things we think we possess in this life are ours, but they're really not? If you've ever had or been around little kids, have you ever noticed how if one comes into the room and picks up a toy of the other one and he goes, no, that's mine, never happens, right? That's kind of what we think about the things we possess. They're mine. What we're learning from this story is, and something that was commonly known and used in that day, the spiritual truth is, we own nothing. I knew a guy when I was in seminary who was in the church where I did my internship in, And he said his goal in life was to become a millionaire. That was his goal. And soon he wasn't in church anymore. He was pursuing his goal because that was his. Do you know how many of the things that you possess in this life that you really own? None. God owns them. And God can take those things from you in a moment. Just think about it for a few minutes. Think about the things you possess, your home, your car, your money, your wealth, your investments. Maybe you own two cars or more. You may possess them, but they're not yours. Solomon very wisely said this in Ecclesiastes 5.14. As he came forth from his mother's womb, naked shall he return. To go as he came and shall take nothing of his labor which is in his hand. Nothing. We own absolutely nothing. Pretty encouraging, right? Do you know why we don't own it? Because it's not ours. All that you have, all that you possess, here is just a stewardship. And you are the manager of it while you're here and alive. God owns it all, and we are his managers. And Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 4.2. Moreover, it is required of a steward, a manager, a servant, to be faithful. 
to be a faithful steward. A steward uses what his master has entrusted to him to prosper his master. What God has entrusted you and me on this earth, our possession, are tools to serve him with. So the question is, are you a steward of what God has entrusted you with? Are you being a good steward? That's the first spiritual truth. We own absolutely nothing of the things we possess. Secondly, we need to learn from this parable that one day, every one of us will suddenly and unexpectedly be removed from our managership. One day, every one of us will be suddenly removed from our our stewardship. Notice verse 2 again. So he called him, this manager, and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. You can no longer be manager. Now, we mentioned before that he was accused. We don't know. It was reported that he was careless with the master's stuff. We don't know for sure whether he was or not. But we do know that he learned that his stewardship was over. His managership was over. He was removed. The manager, the business, I mean the, the rich man who had given him his stewardship took it away from him. His stewardship was over. And I think the application of this to us as a believer is not only that God has entrusted us with a managership of his possessions, he also controls when it will end. And we don't know when that will be. This man was brought into the office one day and it was over. No warning. One day he's the steward, the manager, and the next day he's not. You know, it's interesting. This past week I was doing some work in a lady's house. Uh, It's kind of a sad situation. I, I met this person seven or eight years ago. She had lost her husband and she had two young daughters. And I began doing some handyman type things for her and helping her out in in ways. And uh, last Thursday, while I was doing some work there, she mentioned to me, is it Friday yet? You know, everybody likes Friday because it's the weekend, right? But do you know what? When I went to her house the next day on Friday, 
I knocked on the door. She had it opened, went in. She was crying. And I go, wow, what, what's wrong? She goes, I, I was just fired from my job. Seven and a half years I worked for this company and they fired me. The steward comes into the office. The day before, everything's cool. He can't wait for the weekend. The next day he comes in. His master says, I hear you're careless with what you're doing. Bring in the books and you can't be manager anymore. You and I never know what a day truly brings. Solomon said in Proverbs, boast not yourself of tomorrow for you know not what a day may bring forth. If you go back into the Old Testament example of Joseph, who was a steward, a manager for Potiphar, you'll remember that one day he was over everything that Potiphar owned that he didn't even the Potiphar knew nothing about what was going on except what he had to eat. And you know what happened to him the next day? He's in prison. But you know probably the most unexpected thing we face in life is death. When you and I close our eyes in death, our stewardship here on earth is over. There's no second chance. There's no time to do it over or to try harder or to do better. The rich man told the steward his managership was over. But notice here, that wasn't all that happened. Notice in the text what the rich man told him before the last phrase in verse 2. You can no longer be steward. Give an account of it. You see, not only did this stewardship end suddenly, but he needed to give an account of it. He was called upon to give an exact statement of the actual condition of the properties of the wealth that would expose the extent of his wastefulness and the disorder which the steward had brought to the business. So the records of the stewardship were to be brought to the master. And God wants us to get some wisdom here this morning. One day your stewardship and possessions will be removed for you, and you will need to give an account of it. Are you using them to advance Christ and his kingdom, or are we squandering them on ourselves? Thirdly, 
A third truth we become aware of in this parable that we need to see is that the possessions entrusted to us are to be used as a tool to win people to Christ. To bring people into the kingdom. Believers need to use the possessions, the stewardships that are entrusted to them as a tool for the gospel. Notice again in verses 3 through 9. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, unrighteous wealth, that when you fail or it fails, they may receive you into an everlasting home. It is in this section of the parable where people have trouble. Some feel that Jesus commended this dishonored steward for being dishonest. But that's not the case. Notice the story with me. The steward comes into the boss's office one day and is told he is through as the manager. And he must turn in the books. And he sees the crisis that he's in... He has nothing, he owns nothing, he has, uh, he's not thinking himself to be physically able to do physical labor, which I find kind of funny when I read that. Well, I can't dig. I'll never forget the time when I was in seminary, I did construction work, and one day we were building some apartment buildings, and uh, the boss says, well, the, the materials haven't come today, so we need to dig around and put the, the drainage around the building. <laughs> there was one guy that was working with us says, well, I'm a carpenter, I don't dig. So he left. Left all the rest of us to do the digging. That's kind of what I see here. This guy says, oh, I, I can't dig. I'm too proud to beg. I'm, I, I wouldn't be one of those beggars that sits out there. He sees the crisis. He owns nothing. Then an idea comes to him. 
I am resolved. I know. It's like he goes, I know what I'm going to do. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I can't dig. I, 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 I can't be a beggar. I don't know how to do any other type of work. I'm a manager. I'll make it so, he says, that when I lose my managership, I'll have somewhere to go and be welcomed by them. Verse 4. I am resolved what to do. Verse 5. So this is what he does. He calls every one of his master's debtors. Remember now, this master is a rich man who probably owns multiple types of business things, land, uh, fields, homes. He's a rich man, cattle. And he calls every one of these guys that owes his master money. Or commodities. He says to one, How much do you owe? 100 measures of oil. That's probably about 800 gallons in today's. 800 gallons. Make it 400. Yeah. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. That's about 1,200 bushels. That's a lot of wheat. I grew up on a farm. You always measured your, your, your success of your crops by how many bushels you got per acre. 1,200 bushels is a lot. So he says to him, write down 80. Nothing like knocking 400 bushels off of the 1,200. And then we are told something interesting. The rich man says, this guy's very shrewd. This businessman, this rich man, may not have been on the up and ups either, but I mean, he sees what this guy does and it's shrewd. In those days, it was known for somebody who was a rich business person, if they had people that owed them stuff, to show themselves as being very benevolent, they would at times forgive some of the debts that people owed. 
So this master sees what this guy has done. He doesn't want to put him down because he's done something that's kind of made him look good in the community. So he says he's shrewd. He's dealt shrewdly. Jesus is telling his disciples that when you lose your managership or it fails, he's telling the disciples and you and me to be wise about it. Be wise with what we have. Shrewdly means wisely showing a keen perception, discernment, and foresight. The master commended the unjust steward. Jesus didn't say didn't commend this unjust or shrewd steward. The master did. If you know the last part of verse 8, it says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Jesus said, we need to be shrewd with our possessions. Be wise with it. Yes, we are to enjoy it. Yes, we are to use it for family and all of that type of stuff, but we're also to use it for other purposes, for the kingdom of God. Now, I want to bring us to one last uh, point, because... There's one last truth that Jesus makes for us in this parable. And this is probably the big idea of it all. Jesus says, notice in verse 9, after he tells this story, after he tells of this rich man who had this manager and what all happened and now Jesus says and I say to you Jesus said now I want to tell you something this is what I want you to really get and I say to you make friends for yourselves by unrighteous wealth that Greek word is mammoth. Some versions have manon, mammon. It means money. That when you fail or it fails, you may, they, that they may receive you into an everlasting home. Jesus says, just as this unrighteous, shrewd servant used money to get friends who owed him favors, 
You are to use the possessions you have, disciples, believers, to win friends into everlasting kingdom. And then he says something very interesting. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. Now that's a saying that we've heard Jesus say before. Be faithful in the small things, Jesus said in another parable. You've been faithful in a few things, give them more things. And that's true. But that's not what the text is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is in verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. Here's the thing. The measure of your faithfulness of your possessions is how you use them. The least here is money. That which is least. Did you know that the barometer of your spirituality is measured on how you use your possessions? How you use God's possessions that he's allowed you to be a manager of. Jesus tells us that possessions are gifts from God, but they are the most insignificant of his gifts. Jesus warns us not to overrate the value of earthly possessions. He says, use your possessions. And this word mammon, which means money, he says, use that to win people into everlasting, to win them to the Lord. He says, when you fail or they fa it fails, they may receive you into an everlasting home. You know those people who the debtors were who owned the money to the rich man and the manager chopped it down and gave them a deal. When he was out of a, a, a home, they owed him favors. And when he was released from his stewardship, they gladly accepted him. They welcomed him. 
And Jesus says, use your possessions that you have on earth, which I've given you to win people to me. And that way, when you get to heaven, they will be welcoming you for having done that, given them the gospel, spent money on missions so that people could hear the word of God. They will welcome you. Possessions are gifts from God. Don't overrate the earthly value of possessions. It's the spiritual value of your possessions that are important. So there you have it. We have a stewardship. We are managers. We own nothing. One day we'll be removed from our managership. And we are entrusted by God to use those possessions as tools of the gospel. And finally, Jesus says, the whole big idea of this is, is that how you use your wealth, especially money, is a measure of your spirituality. If you're like the little kid, it's mine, it's mine, it's all mine, and nobody else can have it, and I'm not using it for anything but for me. Jesus said, that which is the least wealth is a measure of your spirituality, how you handle it.